Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good to see you. Uh, my name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are uh, doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Luke 1, 46. Luke chapter 1, starting in uh, verse 46. It is uh, good to see you and uh, Merry Christmas. I, uh, I thought that it would be fun, because Christmas is this week, to start with a little Christmassy illustration by asking this question, who was the real St. Nicholas? Who is St. Nicholas? So I want to give you some facts about uh, this actual historical character. Uh, so who was jolly old St. Nick? A few things you need to know. First of all, he was not German, okay? He was not from Germany. For some reason, we have a tendency to think that. Uh, he uh, helped minister in an area that is today modern-day uh, Turkey. He lived from the end of the third throughout the first half of the fourth century. So end of the uh, 200s, beginning of the, uh, the 300s. He was a bishop. What is a bishop? That's a different type of church government than we have here at Parkway. A bishop is where one guy has church authority over multiple churches. And uh, supposedly he was a, a pretty great, pretty pious guy. Now when it comes to St. Nicholas though, there are a lot of legends that were kind of birthed up around this figure. So I'll give you a few of those. First, it was said that he was so holy and so pious that he, as an infant, only nursed two days a week. And he would fast the other five, which is ridiculous. Uh, if you've ever had a baby, they do the opposite of that, okay? They do the opposite of that, and that they just eat all the time, even when they're full, and then they spit it up and eat some more, okay? But that was St. Nicholas. There's also this great legend around St. Nicholas, which is that at the Council of Nicaea, which is where this group of church leaders got together to refute the teachings of this heretic named Arius, okay? Arius said that the Son of God was not eternal, that, it, that, that the Father used to not have a Son, and that the Son at some point came into being, and so the church said, that's not biblical. There's only one God, and if Jesus is that one God, then we need to condemn the teachings of Arius. And there's a legend that during the Council of Nicaea, St. Nicholas got so upset hearing the heresies of Arius that he went up and smacked Arius in the face, okay? It's a great story. Didn't actually happen, but it's a lot of fun because around Christmas time, what people will do is they will take these kind of Greek icons of St. Nicholas and they will put up phrases like this. We have a few to share with you, okay? We're going to put them up. The first one says this, I came to bring presents and punch heretics and I'm all out of presents. Things like this, okay? Just to get you in the Christmas season. Or one like this, Deck the halls, more like deck the heretic. Or my favorite one, which is this. He knows if you've been naughty. He knows if you've been nice. He knows if you've denied the deity of the sun, okay? So little things like this didn't actually happen, but it's kind of a fun legend. Now, there is one legend that is attached to St. Nicholas, which might have some validity to it, which might have some truth to it, and it's this. His parents supposedly were very wealthy, and when he decided to go into ministry, he decided to give away that wealth. And there was a family in the area where he was ministering that was very poor, okay? They had three daughters, and their daughters were going to have to go into prostitution because they didn't have enough money. So one night when they're sleeping, St. Nicholas decides to take several bags of money and just kind of throw it in through the window, and that develops from there. But Christmas is not ultimately about St. Nicholas. Who is it about? It's about Jesus, right? A few of you are confused. Frosty? No, Jesus, right? It's about Jesus. In the same way, this hymn that we're going to see Mary, the Virgin Mary, we're going to see her sing today, it's not really about Mary, it's about Jesus, okay? It's about Jesus. We're going to look today at this passage, but let me pray for us and then we will get started. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, that, uh, that you've always existed. 
And so I pray that you would, uh, you would bless us, that you would send the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that he might enlighten our hearts, that we might love you more. We thank you for uh, becoming incarnate, becoming a man that you might die for us. And we look forward to your second advent. We look forward to the time where you are coming again to fix what is still broken in the world. We love you and thank you. It's for your name and for your glory that we ask this. Amen. Well, let's look at verses 46 through 47. We're going to walk through this line by line. We've got a lot of text to deal with, and I talk fast. So let's begin. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, this is a very famous part of Luke's gospel, and it is what is called the Magnificat. Okay? The, uh, the word magnifies in Latin, and the Latin Vulgate is magnificat, and that's why it's called the Magnificat of Mary. It's interesting that in Luke's gospel, in the first two chapters, there are three songs. There are three times where people just burst forth into praise. It's almost like watching a musical where people are talking, and then all of a sudden they just start singing. And by the way, if you ever want to laugh so hard that you start crying, ask Tim our worship minister, to do his impersonation of a musical. It's excellent. But that's what's going on here in Luke 1 through 2. So Mary is going to burst forth into praise. That's the first song. It's called the Magnificat. And then later on, you get the second song in Luke 1, 68 through 79, sung by Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's dad. And it is called the Benedictus because he is praising God for this gift of John the Baptist. And then the other song is in Luke 2, 29 through 32. And it is called in Latin, the Nunc Dimittis, which means now release because it's sung by this guy named Simeon and when he, he, he realizes that he can now be released he can die happy because he has seen salvation come to Israel but they burst forth into song and so let's start with the first few words here it says and Mary said and Mary said here's the first thing that I want you to see I want you to understand that God doesn't just use men for his purposes he also uses women you might think as a woman because the Bible does restrict being an elder and the Bible does restrict preaching and teaching in the gathered assembly to men that God cannot use you, and that's not true. God uses broken sinners, men and women, throughout church history, throughout the Bible. Remember that it was Pharaoh's daughter who raised Moses. It was Rahab that was used to hide the Hebrew spies. It was Deborah, a judge, a political leader in Israel that was raised up to deliver God's people. There was the woman Jael that kills the evil leader Sisera. Do you know this story? This is probably a story you did not hear in Sunday school if you were a kid. There's this evil leader named Sisera, this pagan, and this woman, Jael, has him come into her tent, and when he falls asleep, she takes a tent peg and drives it through his head. That's a woman, okay? She delivers Israel through her feistiness, okay? Esther is used to save the Jewish people. Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. Phoebe is used as a servant of the church. Priscilla hosts a house church in her home and many others, but here you have a woman used in a special way as the mother of Jesus with the Virgin Mary. And she's gonna burst forth into praise because of this. Now, who is Mary? What a lot of us do when we think of a nativity scene or when we think of uh, Christmas or something like that, we think back to plays maybe we saw in church when we were younger. And so we have a tendency to think of Mary in some ways that are not correct. We have a tendency to think of her as being, what age? 35-ish, right? She's this grown woman. Historically speaking, the average age that a woman would get married in the first century in Israel was between the ages of 13 and 16. Mary's probably about 15 years old. She is not a woman. She is a little girl. She has barely gone through puberty. 
She's in the age range of late middle school to early high school. That's who this woman is, okay? Also, she would not have been white, all right? I've seen a lot of white Marys. She's Jewish. And when I say Jewish, don't think of Jews in America today. Most of those are of European descent. Don't think of like the curly cues and the the dark clothes. She would have looked a bit darker, not quite Middle Eastern, but also not quite European. She probably would have had darker features, dark brown eyes. What color hair did Mary have? Well, believe it or not, there's actually a debate in church history in the Middle Ages over the hair color of Mary. Some saying it was red, but the majority view being that it was black because she's Jewish, which is probably the right answer. Okay? So you've got this girl, this small girl who's a teenager, and she has dark features, and she is engaged to be married to this guy, Joseph. The way that they would do betrothals is you would be legally bound to somebody, but you wouldn't consummate the marriage until a time after that to make sure that you've been faithful and that you didn't just turn up to be pregnant. Well, guess what happens? Imagine being Mary. You're somebody who's tried to walk in faithfulness, You're somebody who loves God. You know that you've not slept around and all of a sudden that you have this miraculous baby inside of you. What do people start to say about you? What do they start to whisper behind your back? How many times do you think she's called a harlot? How many times as her baby grows do you think people say, oh, Mary, she acted like such a goody two-shoes, like she really loved God and now she turns out just to be a blank and they say these kind of things about her. Imagine the excuse. If, if you have a teenage daughter and she comes up to you and she says, dad, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. Don't worry. I've been faithful. It's a miracle. What do you think? You think not only have you sinned, but you are a terrible liar. I know how this works. I know how you got here. Don't try to trick me with all this Jesus stuff. That's what's going on with Mary. And so here's what you need to see from this though. God uses the broken. God uses those who are lowly. He takes this lowly, poor, peasant girl that is a teenager, and that is the one through whom he will send the second person of the Trinity. It is absolutely incredible. What should we as Protestants think about Mary? Again, this is sermons about Jesus, but I need to say something about Mary as we work through it. Well, we, we don't need to take the Roman Catholic view. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, Roman, Roman Catholicism really has too high of a view of Mary. They would say that what you are to do is you're not to worship Mary. That is what is called latreia. If you've ever heard the word idolatre, latreia means to worship. You're not to worship Mary, but you are to give her what is called dulia, veneration, honor, servitude, these kind of things. So they would say that you can kneel before an image of Mary. You can ask Mary for grace. She can give you grace. It's like spiritual Red Bull when you're theologically lazy. She can give that to you. Uh, You can ask her to pray for you, et cetera, et cetera. And what the Protestant reformers point out is, wait a second, there is no difference between Dulia and Latreia. When the Israelites are bowing before a statue, not talking to the statue, but talking to the God behind the statue, God still condemns them for that to kneel before somebody, to ask them to pray for you as if they're omnipresent, to get grace from them is idolatry. And so that view of Mary is too high. It's it's not right. But we don't need to swing the pendulum to where we like hate Mary. You like skip the Christmas story. You're like that Mary, she's the worst. She's not the worst, okay? What we need to understand is that Mary is simply a human. She's not divine. She's never been divine. She will never be divine. She's simply a human that God uses in a powerful way. God uses Moses in a powerful way. He's just a guy. God uses David in a powerful way. He's just a guy. 
Well, in the same way, he's gonna use Mary in a powerful and special way, but she is just a faithful servant. She's just somebody who is faithful, who loves God, and God will use her in that way. Now, let's see what she says. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She is so overwhelmed by the grace of God, she just bursts forth into praise. She just starts speaking in a hymn. It's kind of like this. Now, don't let me down here, church, okay? You ready? The stars at night are big and bright. (laughs) Apparently, a lot of people from California have moved here. I'm gonna try this one more time. The stars at night are big and bright. Excellent, okay. If you're not from Texas, that was probably really weird and culty. It's kind of like that. When you hear those words, you just have to finish the song. Even those of you that didn't say it were thinking it, right? And so what happens is Mary here is so overwhelmed by the love and grace of God that as she's, after she's just talked with Elizabeth and these kind of things, she just starts bursting forth in praise. It's almost as if tears come to her eyes and she realizes how much grace she has been given by God because praise is always a response to God's grace. It's not that we praise and worship God good enough and then he's happy with us. He gives us grace first And praise and worship is just our response to that. And you see that here with Mary. And she says a few things. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now let me be clear what that does and doesn't mean. This does not mean that she is somehow making God more glorious. When we say give God glory, that's not like he's your iPhone being charged. He's at like 30% glory and you need to make sure that you get him all the way up to 100% glory. You don't change God. He's always glorious. Before creation, he's always glorious. He needs you for nothing, okay? When we say to glorify God or to give God glory, what we mean is to line your thoughts up with God's thoughts about himself. God is glorious, and when we say give God glory, what we're saying is you should recognize it. It's true whether you recognize it or not, but you are called to recognize it. Or if I say something like this, when you sin, you knock God off the throne. I don't mean you literally knock him off the throne. You don't get to knock him off the throne. He's God. What I mean by that is in sinning in your heart, you're acting like he's not on the throne. So Mary's not making God better or something like that. She's appropriately recognizing the magnification and the glory that God already has. And she praises with her soul and her spirit. Now you need to understand these are not two different things. There's a view in theology of humanity, what's called trichotomy. It's also called the wrong view, which is that humans are made up of three three elements, body, soul, and spirit, okay? The right view, what is called dichotomy, is that humans are made up of two elements, body and then soul slash spirit. Notice that the soul and the spirit in the New Testament are said to do the same thing. These are not two different things. It's just two different ways of talking about the same thing. Humans consist of a material part, our body, and then an immaterial part, our innermost being, our soul slash spirit slash heart slash whatever you want to call it. That's what she is doing. This is what is called a hendiades. A hendiades is where you use two words to talk about the same thing. You're using two different words, but you're not talking about two different things. It's like if I say, I'll go to your house despite the rain and weather. I mean, the rainy weather. Or if I say, look and see, those aren't different things. I don't know how you look without also seeing that those are the same thing. Or if I say, go and visit your grandmother, again, go and visit are the same thing. The Bible does this all the time. 
It'll talk about Pharaoh's chariots and his armies. Well, those are the same thing, his armies which have chariots, and that's what Mary is doing here. Now, notice at the end of this little phrase here, Mary calls God Savior. Now, let me tell you why this is important. In context, she's probably, when she uses this term Savior, just thinking as a Jew would think, okay, that God has sent someone to deliver his people Israel. But theologically speaking, you need to understand this, Mary needs a Savior as well. We hold something different in Protestantism than is held in Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, Mary herself is said to be sinless. You ever heard the phrase, the immaculate conception? That is not a reference to Jesus being born without sin. All Christians agree that Jesus is born without sin. That's not what's debated. Protestant, Catholic, and Greek Orthodox all agree Jesus is born without sin. The idea of the immaculate conception is that Mary herself was born without sin, okay? That she is not a sinner, that she is sinless. Now, you get into a problem because that would then mean that her mom had to be without sin and then her mom had to be without sin all the way back to Eve and you get into this weird regression. But you also need to understand that Mary is a sinner. She needs grace. The Bible would say that there is none righteous, no, not one. The only exception the Bible makes is for Jesus because of this virgin birth, because of this miraculous sin-stopping, the flow of sin kind of power thing that is going on uh, with, uh, with the virgin birth. But Mary would have needed to offer sacrifices like any Jewish woman. She would have been unclean after having Jesus and needed cleansing. She needs Jesus as a savior as well. Great gal, but not sinless. Verses 48 through 49. Now we're gonna see the content of her praise. Here's how it's gonna work. She's gonna talk about God's gracious acts to Mary, God's gracious acts to others, and then God's gracious acts to Israel. That's what we're gonna see here in this uh, little hymn. First of all, it says this, 48 through 49. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Here you see God's acts for Mary. Look at what she says at the beginning of 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Here's my question for you. Who does God decide to use for his purposes? It's not the way that we would do it. If I were God and I were gonna pick some people to be used to spread my name and to spread my fame, I would take Harvard Business School grads, guys with PhDs from Princeton, some Navy SEALs, some handsome people. That's who I would take. I would take the best and the brightest and I would say, you guys, go crush it in your own strength. That's not who God chooses. You ever picked teams for dodgeball? You ever picked team for dodgeball? Don't raise your hand. Did you ever end up being kind of the last one picked? I mean, I didn't. I was excellent at dodgeball, but just looking out there, I can tell some of you probably were picked last. Well, here's how people pick. Here's how humans pick. You have two team captains, and they pick the best. So the guy that gets to pick first picks the kid who's like 6'8 in middle school. His name's like Brutus or something like that. And they get him, and they go back and forth. And then you're left with two guys that nobody wants. One of them is playing with a ladybug, The other one's facing the wrong direction, right? And you're thinking to yourself, I don't want either of these guys. My team, in fact, would probably do better if I didn't have them at all. Those are the kind of people that God chooses. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chooses those who are broken. You see, because God is like the one on the dodgeball team that can just take the whole team himself so you can be free just to trip over your feet and bump into the wall and these kind of things. 
God is the one who's glorious and so we don't have to be. God chooses those who are lowly. He chooses those who are humble. 1 Peter 5.5 says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You wanna have a hearing with God? You come humbly. You come broken and contrite. Whether you're struggling with sin, whether you're walking in it, whether you feel far from God, whether you hate God, whatever it is, you come humbly and you have an audience. But if you want God to oppose you to your face, come proud, come proud. God hates all sins, but there's something about pride that just keeps popping up over and over and over again in the New Testament. And so Mary says, I'm this lowly person of low estate and God has given me grace. Now look at what she calls herself at the end of uh, that little phrase there. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now this is a significant term in the Bible, okay? When it calls him servant, Moses is called a servant. The prophets are called servants. Israel is called servant here in just a few verses. Uh, Those who bear the sword to punish evildoers in Romans 13 are called servants, but the term is actually stronger than that in Greek. The term here is not servant, it's slave. And it's in the feminine, it's literally slave woman. God has called me his slave woman. Do you know why so many English translations translate it as servant and not slave? It's because they came after the Civil War and there's such a cultural sensitivity to that that they use the term servant or bondservant, but that's not what the text means. She is saying that she is God's slave and here's why I'm telling you this is so important. The highest thing that a human can ascribe to, the highest goal that a human can have is to be a slave of God because it means that you have true freedom. Zach, I don't like that. I don't want to be a slave to anybody. Well, you don't get a pick. You're either a slave to the devil and your sin or you're a slave to God. And here's the good news that when God owns you, he does what's good for you. He is the one that you can trust. He brings life and joy and freedom and these kind of things. And so Mary is happy to take on this title. She continues with this. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Let me mention a few things in this, uh, these few verses. First of all, where the text says from now on. This is a common feature that you see in Luke and in Acts, both written by Luke, to say God is doing something new. The things will never be the same. What Mary's going to do is she's going to look to the future and say God will do this for me but she bases it on God's faithfulness in the past. She's looking both forward and she's looking backward. God will bless me throughout all generations because he has shown faithfulness in the past. And because God has shown grace to this little, unfully married, pregnant, present girl, everyone will remember her name. Every time you tell the Christmas story, her name will be remembered. Every time you read the Gospels, when you preach the Gospels, her name will be remembered. We name our daughters after Mary. It's one of the most common names in the Western world. In Hebrew, it's Maryam. In Spanish, it's Maria. In French, it's Marie. In Italian, it's Mariana. In English, it's Mary. The names Miriam, Marilyn, Moira, Mariamne, May, Maureen, and all the others all go back to this woman. Why? Because God has given her grace, okay? How does God use Mary in a special way? You ready to do a little theology with me? Let's do some theology. For all eternity, you just have one God. How many gods are there? One. There are not three gods. There's only one God. Yet somehow this God is three distinct persons. When I say persons, don't think people. 
people have a tendency to be different beings. This is only one being, okay? The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Logos, the Word, has always existed, okay? He has always existed. He has always been divine. What happens at the incarnation is that all that stuff stays the same. He's still just one person. He's still divine. At the incarnation, he now takes on a second nature. While remaining what he was, he took on what he previously was not. He's always had his deity. From whom does he get his humanity? He gets it from Mary. He gets his humanity from Mary that she's used in this special way. Now, there's a term given to Mary throughout uh, church history, and I need to clarify this to you because Protestants freak out if they don't understand what I'm saying. Sometimes Mary is called either the mother of God or sometimes she is called the God-bearer. It's a very famous term in theology. It is theotokos. Theotokos means God-bearer. Let me explain what that does and doesn't mean, okay? This is very important. Mary is not the one that gives divinity to Jesus. She has no divinity. She's just a human. She, the Son of God precedes Mary, okay? When people call her the mother of God or they call her the Theotokos, the God-bearer, here's what they're trying to say. They're simply trying to say the baby in her womb is truly God and truly man. There was a heretic, Jeff talked about him last, uh, last week, his name was Nestorius, and he said the baby in Mary's womb was not God, and later on, the Son of God would kind of unite to that guy, and now you have two Jesuses, now you have two persons, that's not right. So what the church had to say early on was, no, 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 we don't know how it all works, but the baby in her womb is truly God, he's always had his deity, he's co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And he's also truly human and he gets that from Mary. So it's not saying that she is like, uh, it's not saying that she like precedes the son of God. It's not saying that she has divinity or any of those kind of things. It's, it's not actually a comment about Mary. It's a comment about Jesus. It's saying the baby in her womb is the God, is really God. That's the idea. Let's look at verse 50. Now she's gonna talk about God's acts for all. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Okay. What does it mean to fear God? It does not mean like have a horror movie terror of God. I've told this story before, but I think it's important. I had two roommates in college and we would play pranks on each other, okay? So we had a cardboard cutout of the Joker from Batman, okay? The, the, the Heath Ledger Joker, why so serious, big scars. He's hunched over and creepy like this. And what we would do is we would hide him in different places in the apartment so that you would be terrified when you came home from work. Okay? So you'd come home from work and turn on the light, and there's the Joker in your kitchen, and you would scream like a girl, right? Or you'd pull back your clothes in the morning to get dressed, and boom, there's the Joker looking you right in the face. It was like six foot tall, okay? Or you would pull back your covers at night to go to bed. You just watched a scary movie, and now you pull back the covers, ah, and there's the Joker, right? And then my favorite one was that one time I went to take a shower, and I pull back the curtain, and there's the Joker, and someone had hung like a loofah on his arm. Like right there, like he's just ready, okay? And so it's not that kind of terror. That's not the idea. To fear God is the idea of this reverential respect because you realize you are not his equal. Imagine that you've committed murder and you're standing before a judge. That judge has more authority than you. That judge can sentence you to death. That judge controls what happens to you for the rest of your life. That's the kind of fear. That's the kind of reverence. Or when you're pulled over by a police officer, I am very sarcastic by nature, but guess what happens when I get pulled over? I am not sarcastic, okay? I do not say things like, you think I can draw my gun faster than you can draw yours? I don't play around. When I get pulled over, 
If they say, show me your hands, you got it. Step out of the car, yes, sir. Why? Because biblically and legally, they have an authority over me that I don't have. Now, take that idea and multiply it by infinity. God is a being who's always existed. God is a being who is everywhere and nowhere at the same time because he's not a spatial being. He is a being who is infinite. He doesn't have to think thoughts. They're just all there. He sees all truth as truth. He knows how many hairs are on your head of every person that's ever lived, even though it changes every day. You're standing before this being who created you, who spoke creation into being, and a being who, if you die outside of Christ, can make you hurt like you cannot believe. God, this infinite being, can make you hurt unreal like anything you've ever felt this side of eternity. When you stand before that being, you realize, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man of unclean thoughts. I have done these things. I need mercy, and that's who God gives mercy to, those who fear him, those who know who he is. Now look at the end of verse 50. It says from generation to generation. Now this is very important because what Mary's appealing to here is God's, what's called chesed in Hebrew, God's covenantal faithfulness. You understand that humanity has no right to be in a relationship with God. Does everybody understand that? We've sinned against God, he owes us nothing. God has to condescend, God has to make covenants with humans so that there can be a relationship. And what Mary is appealing to is God's covenant faithfulness from generation to generation. Here's the passage she's probably thinking of. Deuteronomy 5, 9 through 10. You shall not bow down to them, that's false gods and idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's probably what Mary is thinking. When Israel walks in unfaithfulness, God judges them. When Israel walks in faithfulness, God is overwhelmingly gracious to them. And what Mary's simply pointing to is God's overwhelming grace. Now, I need to clarify something on this passage. This passage is not teaching what you might have heard from television preachers. By the way, just don't watch any preachers that are on TV. Uh, What they would say of some idea of a generational curse. I don't know if you've ever heard this or not. But there are guys that will say, because Deuteronomy says that your kids will be, they'll be a curse, they'll be judged to the third and fourth generation. If your parents were lost or your parents were sinful, you and your family is cursed and the only way to get out of the curse is to send me three easy payments, a $29.99 or whatever it is. The only way to get out of the curse is to use some witchcraft, say some mantra, do some special prayer, something like that. That's not the point of this text and that's also not true. This is assuming that the kids are committing the same sins as the parents, that's the context. This is assuming that the kids keep doing idolatry like the parents do. Not that the kids repent and follow Yahweh. That's not the idea. John Piper says it helpfully like this. No innocent child has ever been punished for a father's sins. Only guilty children are punished and are guilty of the very sins that their fathers send. Okay? So it's not saying that you're just under some curse even though you're faithful to God. It's assuming that you did what your parents did. The Bible's clear. You don't put kids to death for the fault of their parents that we shall not say, as Ezekiel says, our fathers ate sour grapes and our teeth were set on edge. Right? My dad had a warhead and I kind of puckered. And I was just saying, don't say that. God judges each person individually in that sense. Or as Galatians 3.13 will say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. If you are a Christian, God only has love for you. God has no wrath for you. 
He has no curse for you. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You are loved. The point of Mary saying from generations to generations is to talk about the second part of that Deuteronomy passage, that God judges to the third and fourth generation, but it goes to thousands beyond that. God is equally wrath and equally gracious, but Christians just get to experience the graciousness of God. Verses 51 through 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. First of all, when it says that God has shown strength with his arm, you understand God doesn't have a literal arm, right? This is what is called an anthropomorphism. What is an anthropomorphism? Impress your friends. That's a $5 word. Anthropomorphism. It's where you describe something as human, though it's not human. So when you go to fill up your gas tank and you say, yep, she sure was thirsty, that's an anthropomorphism, okay? Your car feels no thirst, okay? God does not literally have an arm. Does he go to an armpit with hair? Does he, get to, does he have clogged pores, fingernails? Does, does, does his dead skin cells turn into fa- All of that's ridiculous. God doesn't have an arm. The Bible speaks in a way that we as dumb humans can understand because we're talking about a being that is wholly other, Okay? God doesn't have a literal arm. The idea is you know what it's like to have an arm and you know what it's like to have a strong arm. Well, some of you, depending on where you got picked on dodgeball. And so therefore, therefore you're supposed to know God is strong. The Bible says that God gathers us under his wings. That doesn't mean he's a big bird. It calls him a rock. That doesn't mean he's made of granite. Uh, He uh, speaks to Moses through a burning bush. That doesn't mean he has leaves. In Zechariah, it says he has seven eyes. That doesn't mean his face looks like a spider or something like this. These are all images to try to understand a being that is beyond our comprehension. And what has God done? He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty uh, from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Here's what you're supposed to see. You're supposed to see the contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. It is a complete reversal Who do we, as humans, who do we as lost society, exalt? We exalt the proud. That's who we exalt. We want the one with the most Twitter followers, the most Instagram followers, the uh, most money, the entertainers, the musicians. Churches do the same thing. Grow the brand. That's what God has asked of us, despite the fact that he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We exalt the, we kind of like it. There are certain actors and, and athletes and stuff that are really, really arrogant, and I kind of like watching it. After they've given him an interview after the game, they're like, you scored 18 touchdowns. How did you do it? Well, I've got huge muscles and I'm awesome. That's amazing. Thanks for talking. It's kind of like that. We exalt the proud. Who else do we exalt? We exalt those in authority. That's why it's talking about those in governmental leaders. Despite the fact that it's often the governmental authorities that oppress Christians, whether that's Egypt in the Old Testament or Babylon to Judah or Rome in the New Testament or even present-day America where Christians are persecuted for their views on sexuality and gender. Despite the fact that typically the government is against us, we have a tendency to exalt those in authority. They don't use that authority to serve others. They use it to serve themselves. Who else does our culture exalt? It exalts the person who is self-reliant. You might not even know this is a sin. Because you're an American, you might think, pulling myself up by my own bootstraps and not needing anyone or needing God is a virtue. It is a vice. It is sin. You don't get to be self-reliant as a Christian. I'm a self-made man, says the person breathing God's air. Right? It's ridiculous. You are dependent upon God and you're dependent upon his church. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
So whereas the world exalts those that are self-reliant and exalts those who have authority and exalts those who are powerful, who does God raise up? He raises up the lowly. He raises up the humble. He raises up those who are the have-nots. Now, just to be clear, this text is not pushing for some sort of socialistically political egalitarian society or something like this. It assumes that these people who are lowly are in covenant with God. Okay, that's very important. From Mary's perspective, when she talks about the lowly, she's talking about Israel. And when she's talking about the oppressors, she's talking about the pagan nations. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not rich, bad, poor, good. There's righteous rich and unrighteous rich, just like there's righteous poor and unrighteous poor. God will send a poor person to hell that does not know him, just like he will send a rich person to hell that does not know them. This text is assuming that covenant is the main thing. It's assuming that the lowly here are those who know God, and those who are high up are those who don't need God. Why do I need God? I've got a yacht. I've got an iPhone. I don't need God. I'm great. That's who God casts down. That's who God casts down. Now, Mary's song here, the Magnificat, doesn't actually start with Mary. A lot of the themes that she's repeating come from another woman who sang a song in scripture, and her name is Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel. This is Hannah's song. This is 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. It's long, but I want you to see it because it's important for Mary's context. Mary's also given this baby, which is this special thing because she's uh, unable to have this baby, although hers comes the natural way, not the uh, miraculous way like this. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail." The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That same kind of theme. God puts down the proud and exalts the lowly. He gives grace to those who don't deserve it. When you see the kind of people that God uses in scripture, they're a bunch of losers. I don't know why we teach them to kids as these models of people to follow. Abraham's a moon-worshiping pagan from Ur, okay? Uh, David kills a guy and sleeps with his wife, et cetera, et cetera. All these people seem to be, Samson, what is his weird love affair with Delilah? What is going on with that guy? He's just hitting the gym and hitting on this awful woman. That's his life, okay? He's not someone to emulate. God chooses these people who are losers and he gifts them. He empowers them. He does great things through them. We're almost done. Two more verses. Verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his, what's the word? mercy. All of this is due to God's mercy. We do not, God owes us nothing. We do not get to claim anything on God other than what he has promised us. And he makes those promises according to his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Here you see God's acts for Israel. Okay. This text here, these two verses is simply saying this, God keeps his promises. 
He keeps his promises. When I tell my son something's gonna happen and it's within my control to be able to make sure that it happens, I tell him, daddy keeps his promises. Daddy keeps his promises because I want him to understand that though there are times I will break mine. Though I say, hey buddy, we're gonna go get ice cream and the ice cream store is closed because I'm not omniscient like God. I want him to know that God keeps his promises. Imagine being a Jew in the first century, okay? Your name is Mordecai or something like this. You probably look a little bit like Tim. Tim looks kind of Jewish. So you look kind of like Tim. It's in the first century. Your name's Mordecai. Your wife's name is almost certainly Rachel, okay? Probably something like Rachel. And uh, you are trying to be a faithful Jew, but it looks like God has broken every one of his promises. If you're in the first century and you're Jewish, you're thinking, wait a second, God has promised a Messiah. There's no Messiah. Oy vey, when will God send a Messiah? You look around and Israel is supposed to be ruling the nations. You're not ruling the nations. You're being ruled by pagan Rome, this polytheistic, idolatrous, I mean, empire. (coughs) You look around and you realize people are sick. The wolf isn't lying down with the lamb. The wolf seems to be eating the lamb. People are being demonically oppressed. Every one of the promises of God seem to be false if you live in the first century and you're Jewish. I would have lost my faith a long time ago. It's been 400 years since God has spoken in between the Old and the New Testaments, and none of his promises are fulfilled. I would have become an agnostic or an atheist. And then all of a sudden, you hear about this miraculous birth, and that piques your attention. And as this kid gets older and becomes a man, now all of a sudden, people are being healed. Demons are being cast out. The good news is being preached to the poor. The kingdom of God has come. And this Savior, this one who is the Messiah, who people hail as a king, dies on a cross for the sins of mankind. And he's resurrected, showing that he wasn't a phony. And now the gospel is going out. You're seeing Gentiles praise God in a language you don't even understand because you remember that one day all the nations will flock to Zion. All the nations will flock to Jerusalem. This is why Christmas is exciting because God keeps his promises. Yes, your newest computer or gadget's awesome. Yes, yes, Santa Baby is a hilarious song when Tim sings it. Yes, there's there's many good things about Christmas. But the reason that it's so exciting is because it is D-Day when it comes to the enemy. That God himself, while remaining God, becomes a man to save us, to keep God's law because we can't keep it. We break it all the time to die for our sins because we deserve to die. The wages of sin are death. To be resurrected, conquering death, to cast out demons because there's one stronger now who can bind the strong man and plunder his goods. That's why Christmas is exciting because after D-Day happens, after the allies land at Normandy, which is what Jesus is doing for humanity, after there's this landing at Normandy, you know there are still battles to fight. You know that the enemy has been ultimately defeated But one day we're waiting for him to be fully vanquished. One day the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and I will dance to the tunes of the screams of his torments. And we press on until that time. That is why it is exciting. As Martin Luther said, if the world had treated me the way it has treated God, I would kick the vile, wretched thing to pieces. And that's what God could have done. But instead he sends the second person of the Trinity to redeem us to forgive us. God sends his son to die for his enemies while we're still his enemies. We love him only because he first loved us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Now, I cannot think of a better way to end than by reading a creed 
We talked about this last week. Jeff read from the uh, Chalcedonian definition, which is part of the Chalcedonian Creed. And so today I want to read something about who Jesus is and what he's come to do from what is called the Athanasian Creed. This is one of the most popular creeds. A creed is just a summary of our faith. One of the most popular creeds in church history. We don't actually know when it was written. We just know that it is very popular throughout church history. Let me read it for you and then we will be done. Now, this is the true faith. I love that. I love that it just says, this is Christianity. If you don't hold what I'm about to read, by the way, you're not a Christian, regardless of what you say. This is historically what it means to be a Christian. This is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards to his divinity. He's not less than God. He doesn't have less power than God. He's not less old than God. Less than the Father as regards his humanity, okay? Only as regards his humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, he doesn't get rid of his godness, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, It's not as though his humanity and his deity are like blue paint and yellow paint that you mix and get green paint. That's neither blue nor yellow. He is one certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. He suffered for our salvation. He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic. That just means universal. Don't freak out. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It just means universal. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. We talked about this a little bit last week. When we say that Jesus is begotten, we do not mean that he is created or made. We don't mean the same thing that when we have kids. When I had, when when my wife and I, when we had Judah, that's a person that didn't exist and now he does. That's not the case with the son. He's always existed. Also, now you have another human. It's not as though with Jesus you get a second God. There's only one God. We don't mean that he's created. There's no change in God. What we mean is he is eternally God and also his person is from the Father. That's what we mean. And he comes down and becomes a human to save humans. Only God can save humans. It's humans that need saving. Jesus does both on our behalf. Praise be his name. Merry Christmas. Let's pray as those helping serve communion pass out the elements. Father, we come before you because the Son has made a way and you've given us the Spirit by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father, and I pray that you would be with us. I thank you for this text. I thank you that you choose the lowly. I thank you that you don't choose the best, that you don't choose the brightest, that you certainly don't choose the most moral or I would just be out, but rather you choose those who are broken. You choose those who the world has rejected. So we thank you for Mary's song, the Magnificat. We pray that it wouldn't be about Mary, that we wouldn't think about a sermon about Mary. Mary is the vehicle through whom Christ comes and so we thank you for that. We thank you for using ordinary people and most of all, we thank you for, uh, for Christ, one who is eternal and yet also takes on humanity. We love you and thank you, Christ's name. Amen.